So this morning we are starting a new series titled Explore God. And today and for the next six weeks, we are going to pose a question related to God and the Christian faith. Questions like, is there a God? And if so, why does he allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus God? Is the Bible reliable? And lastly, if there is a God, can we know him personally? We're doing this series here for several reasons. One, even though it would seem by the number of churches here in East Rock and Elkton that faith is a given for people, that everyone goes to church, this actually is not the case. Lots of people around us have slowly begun to see Christianity as irrelevant, unnecessary to their daily lives. And these same people typically view churches like ours as unsafe places to ask questions. Places that will only give easy surface level answers. And we want Church of the Lamb to be a place for all of us to name our struggles and explore the questions and doubts that surround a life of faith. That come to us in surprising ways in a life of faith. Two, we're doing this series because Christians doubt. A Christian who doubts. This is not an oxymoron. In the words of Flannery O'Connor, she was a, a Catholic writer. There are some of us who have to pay for our faith every step of the way and who have to work out dramatically what it would be like without it and if being without it would ultimately be possible or not. This is what Flannery O'Connor did through fiction. She explored the questions and struggles of faith as a way of navigating her own personal faith. And as you read her novels, you discover that there's lots of darkness, that she sees the world in all its complexities and the evil that's a part of it. We want to say in this series that these kinds of doubts aren't incompatible with deep faith. In fact, doubts lived out before God within the church might be the very thing that leads you into a deep faith. Our world has set doubt and faith against each other as enemies. But that's not the way it has to be. Doubt can be a way of seeking faith. One final reason. It's possible where we live to be a cultural cultural Christian. Because our faith is rarely put to the test. No one's going to come kill us because of our faith. So we can say that we're Christians and there's never really a test, a litmus test to determine whether that's really the case or not. What happens is many of us assume we're Christians, but kind of like a weak immune system, our faith does very little in our everyday life. In fact, there are times when we act in direct opposition to our Christian faith, but we still take Christianity as our religion because we're not anything else. But by allowing yourself to ask questions like these, God can breathe new life into your faith. He can awaken your immune system and He can restore to you the joy of your salvation. That this is something that should affect you on a daily, hour-by-hour level. Now today, our question is this. Does life have a purpose? 
And the truth be told, most of us don't sit around in our living room at the end of the day pondering this. We don't. But many of us do ask this question in other ways. So another way to ask this question is, how do we get to the end of our lives and be completely at peace? Free from the guilt of feeling as if we failed to measure up to life's hope for, hopes for us. Another way, where do we find contentment and full satisfaction in our lives? Is it through enough money? family and children? Is that where we find contentment? Or is it something else? Is it complete freedom to do whatever we want in life? Is that the definition of happiness? I'm mindful, though, that there are some of us who frown on this kind of exploration, as if it's only the question of a modern and overly educated people. So when Katie and I lived in Baton Rouge, One of the men in our church was this educated country boy. He had a Ph.D. in agriculture. And his son went on to be a biologist. One day they were debating a philosophical question, and the old school dad became uncomfortable with where the conversation was headed. So he said to his son, Boy, you are educated beyond your intelligence. That's how some of you feel about this question of life's purpose. This is just the question of people who are too educated, be educated beyond their intelligence, too educated for their own good. Believe it or not, this question, along with all of the questions that we're going to ask in this series, are questions that have been asked for throughout history. It is not just the question of a modern, overly educated people. For instance, the writer of the book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, was possessed by this sole ambition to discover the purpose and the meaning of life. We know the author by the name Koheleth, or teacher, but he also identifies himself with King Solomon. He says he's the child of David. He's Israel's king. Now, whether he's actually King Solomon or not, or this is some literary move to help make us associate him with King Solomon, this very wealthy king in Israel, uh, it's hard to tell that. But one way to think about this book is to picture Koheleth as an old man nearing the end of his life. He's sitting on his front porch and he's telling a younger man the story of his lifelong search for meaning. Most of you are going to remember his tagline conclusion of his search. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As you read Ecclesiastes all the way through, this ancient book, it feels like the writer is ahead of his time, as if he lives in our current world. He's lived what we perceive as the good life exhausting all the normal avenues of joy and satisfaction. So like a lot of people today, he sought satisfaction by developing a mastery of knowledge. He took pride in his breadth of research. As I was reading it this week, I kept thinking that his house would have reminded you of something like Monticello. When you go to Jefferson's Monticello, you see artifacts that are collected from all over the world as soon as you enter. When you enter Monticello, Jefferson wanted you to think, this is a man 
who knows the world. He is a master of knowledge. He would have had a library that surpassed anything in the known era, inventions that were unheard of anywhere else. This is what Jefferson did, isn't it? He had these little knickknacks, these cool ways of telling time and the days of the week. Koheleth was a Renaissance man before his time. But as soon as he obtained the next thing he wanted, he always discovered that he wanted more. There was never satisfaction to spare, always this vacuous hole within him. Now, one good thing we can say about Koheleth is that he was at least self-aware. Lots of people today live in this way, don't they? They obtain more and more, and when they feel some angst, they get some more. But they rarely stop to think about how dissatisfied they are with life. Koheleth pursued love too, but he found that it also lacked the capacity for fully satisfying him. He went to the government's courts in the way that a lot of people today rush to Washington to try to save the world. He hoped to be uplifted by seeing justice, justice carried out, the innocent defended, poor lifted up. But instead, what did he find? But injustice. And it led him into further despair. Over and over, he found life to be this shell game. Satisfaction, always elusive. So sitting on his porch, he's near the end of his journey. He makes the declaration once again at the very end, the final chapter, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Can you imagine this young man sitting at his feet? Is this really what my future is going to be about? Thankfully, these are not his last words. Here are his last words. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now that would sound to Christians like a good last you know, deathbed confession, doesn't it? Fear God, keep his commandments there's still something sad about it. What's sad is that it's taken him an entire lifetime to figure out what a person should learn from the very beginning of their life. And here's what I mean. So the book of Proverbs, it's intended for teaching young children, especially young men. And the book of Proverbs in the first chapter says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to start out on the right foot, here's the thing that you need to know. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is how a person should begin their life. It's the first thing you should learn. But Koheleth, sadly, only discovers this at the very end. You see, there are two primary ways people find meaning and purpose in life in our world. The first way is what we see from Koheleth. You pursue it. You pursue meaning. You seek to give yourself to something that in return will give you a sense of purpose and satisfaction in life. So you give yourself to work. You work hard for your family. You, you give yourself to love and to family and children. Or you give yourself to pleasure, to enjoyment even to service of others, maybe. 
Oftentimes, it's a combination of all these. And you hope that in return, you're going to experience something of the good life. Satisfaction, fullness. Surely, if my life is well-rounded enough, I will be happy. This is what Koheleth does. He gives himself two things, but at every turn, the thing he hoped would give him a sense of meaning fails to deliver. Why is this? What's the problem? Do you think that it really is that life is vanity? That the pursuit of meaning itself is a failed project, only for kind of youthful idealists who've got the energy to try to do it. This is what a lot of people have come to believe. It's what the cynic inside a lot of us believes, that the place we will find freedom is when we stop putting so much pressure and expectation on life. Then we'll be happy. But within the word vanity, the key word in Ecclesiastes lies something more, a second way of finding meaning in life. You see, the word vanity also is the word for vapor. It's the word you would use to describe the fog that hides Massanutten from us right now. When we say that everything is vapor, everything is fog, what we're saying is that life is hiding something from us. Koheleth is telling us that the vapor of the world screens us from God himself. That because of all the things that we pursue in the world, we can't see the thing that really matters, which is God. So here is the other way we can find meaning in life. This is the way the Bible says we discover meaning, not by pursuing it, but by receiving it. Receiving it. Out of the fog that is our lives in this world, out of this elusiveness of satisfaction, meaning has been revealed to us. And not to receive it, to go on with our search, is to become a rebel and a fool. This is what the strange introduction to John's gospel says to us. John says that in the beginning of time was the word. Now, the Greek word here is logos. The logos was this ancient concept for how everything in life fit together, existence, how it all fit together. This was how the ancients made sense of the world. You get in touch with this hidden principle, the logos, this secret to the universe, they said, and your life will find its true meaning. But instead of a hidden concept, John tells us the logos, the word, is actually a person who has stepped out of the fog of history. Jesus, who stepped into the world as a human being and said, follow me, I'm the meaning of your existence. I am the one in whom all things hold together. I am the secret, Jesus says. And when you listen to the gospel stories, Jesus surprisingly proves to be something like a redeemed Koheleth, a true Solomon. So everywhere Jesus goes turns into a feast, a party. And this is what Koheleth said, right? Enjoy yourself. This is what we heard for SWR read. Eat and drink and be merry. Jesus uh, attends a wedding and he refuses to let that wedding be ruined by the wine running out. Then, when new people follow Jesus, there's this celebratory dinner. But here's the difference between Jesus and Koheleth. Koheleth would say that this is vanity. 
It's all a vapor. It's all going to pass. Jesus never says such enjoyment of pleasure is vanity. He never does. Jesus never looks down on humanity for delighting in his creation. He never does. At the same time, like Koheleth, Jesus knows the experience of the poor and the weak. He's well aware that some people have been relegated to the garbage heap of the world, so to speak. But again, unlike Koheleth, Jesus' knowledge of the depths of brokenness and evil in our world do not lead him to despair. Jesus loses friends. He's separated from his own father. But his experience of loss doesn't lead him to despair. Instead, Jesus cares for the poor. He lays down his life for them and he insists that his followers do the same. All the while, Jesus calls his followers to pray. Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But of course... Jesus' life also takes a very different turn than Kohelis. Now, this is a turn we don't usually account for when we talk of the meaning of life. Whatever Christians might say, we cannot say that receiving Jesus as the meaning to life makes life easy. We cannot say this as if it's as simple as answering a question in Sunday school where Jesus becomes like the pop-up puppet in the box. He is the one-word answer to every question of life. It is not that easy. You know, at the center of the meaning of life in this world, according to Jesus, is a deep struggle. A kind of suffering that can only be described as a type of death. It's a struggle none of us desire, but one we have to face if we want to truly discover the meaning and purpose of our lives. So Jesus on the last evening of his life, would say in his prayers, Father, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Beneath the surface of Jesus' prayer is this question of meaning. God, does my life have to be this hard? Is this the path that I have to walk? Is there any way out? Then, Having taken the narrow path on the cusp of his death, Jesus comes to the point of a crisis of meaning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How many of you have ever dared utter this question to God in the depths of your being? God, you're completely gone. Why? If Jesus' death tells us anything, it's that all of us are vulnerable to points in life where things go dark and everything feels meaningless. And I hope you don't think this is too heavy because this is the experience of the one we follow as Lord and King. His death is a rebuke to those who would say that God is most concerned about our current happiness. Absolutely not. Look at Jesus. This is not the concern of God, not his main concern. But at the same time, Jesus's dark night of the soul didn't last forever. He burst forth from the grave. And in doing this, Jesus revealed this mystery at the heart of the universe. At those points when life is darkest, God is actually still at work. 
At the points you believe God is entirely absent, He is actually most at work bringing life from death. This is the testimony of the saints who suffered in faith. Even when we feel as if He's disappeared and meaning is gone, God is active in the shadows. And following death is always a form of resurrection, hounding it. Refusing to give it the last word. So this is the story of a man named Jerry Sitzer. He recorded his experience in his book, A Grace Disguised. Jerry lost his wife, mother, and daughter in a tragic car accident that was caused by a drunk driver. And here's how he describes the feelings that followed. I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never again emerge as a sane, normal, believing man. He was tempted to total despair, to agree with Koheleth at his worst. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But then he goes on to say this. Since I knew that darkness was inevitable and unavoidable, I decided from that point on to walk into the darkness rather than try to outrun it. To let my experience of loss take me on a journey where it would lead and to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think I could somehow avoid it. I chose to turn to run toward the pain, however falteringly, and to yield to the loss, though I had no idea at the time what that would mean. This story goes to show what Christians claim Jesus has revealed. At the center of meaning in our world is the reality of death. Koheleth is right about this. Life is broken. There is evil and tragedy, but here's where he's wrong. This is not the last word. Grace is still present in our world, and resurrection awaits us. And this is why Jerry was able to title his book, A Grace Disguised. Because in it, in leaning into the suffering, he would one day see there was grace. All was not lost. Koheleth says we should find joy by eating, drinking, and being merry. And at one point he says, for tomorrow we die. He's not altogether wrong, but he is partly wrong. These pleasures will not satisfy us on their own, but they do point to a joy that is beyond the fog of death. The table of the Lord, this place where we feast, is the place that we eat, drink, and discover joy, where our sorrows will one day be fully mended, our cups will always be full, and where we are with Christ, the one in whom all things cohere, the one in whom things will one day make sense, even though they don't right now. So the question, are you pursuing meaning in all these ways that are never going to satisfy you? Or are you receiving it? Because Jesus has stepped out of the fog of history and he's calling to you and he's saying,
It's me. I am the one who will make sense of all of this for you. I am the one who will love you and who will carry you through the darkness. Are you pursuing meaning? It's a never-ending task. Are you receiving it? It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.